Um, like Bill said, today we are wrapping up a sermon series. I didn't even introduce my, did I introduce myself? I don't know. I'm Melissa. I serve here as the executive pastor. Sorry. Um, we're going to wrap up a sermon series that Bill has really been challenging us to look at the way that God has gifted us and find a way to steward those gifts as a church family and, and how vital it is for us to be active in our faith active in community that helps us grow in our faith. Um, and like he said, it's something that you're like, oh, are they going to start talking about it? No, we're not going to start talking about it. We're, we're going to keep talking about it. But it's okay. It's good. It's a good thing that we talk about this because um, I think what you heard from Mike and Celeste is really important that sometimes we just get stagnant. We get super comfortable and nothing ever pushes us outside of the little kind of comfort bubble that we have. And when we get pushed outside of that, that comfort zone, that's really where we start to see growth. Okay? That's where we start to get stretched. And that's where we see a lot of fruit happening. And so um, we want you guys to um, be involved in, in, in serving and um, in a group or a care group like Regen or, or Reengage. Um, but you've been presented with all the information now. So you just have to say yes. We made it really easy. So um, we're going to be in Matthew 5 today. So as you guys turn there in your Bibles or go to the live event on your phone, um, I, I, I just want to, y'all like sports? We're in Texas, of course. Most of us like sports. Um, I love sports. I also love sports movies, TVs, documentaries, like Give Me a 30 for 30 or like The Untold. I just watched The Swamp Kings. Like I, give me those. I love those movies. And I love the, the drama of sports and sports stories and stuff like that. The best TV show of all time is Friday Night Lights. You can debate me all you want. You will lose. There's nothing better than coaching Tammy Taylor and Riggins and Street, Saracen. I love it. Best show. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin it for you, but you've had plenty of time to see it. So anyways, um, so, you know, the, the first episode of the first season is Coach Taylor and this is all about, you know, Dylan Panthers, and it's supposed to mimic the Odessa Permian, you know, mojo and all that. And, um, but he has the best QB one in all the state of Texas and highly recruited and Jason Street. And he is going to dominate. And um, what happens? He throws an interception, takes a hit, paralyzed out for the rest of his life. And then, so... Coach Taylor has to turn and look at his sideline. He sees his little skinny sophomore named Matt Saracen. And he's like, all right, kid, let's go. And this kid's like literally never touched the field. Like, he's like, I'll never play. I'm behind Jason Street. There's nothing that I will never play. And here he goes, and he's in. And what happens? You know, he just takes him, and they win the game. Just sheer grit, full eye, you know, full heart. Clear eyes, full hearts can't lose, right? Like that, I mean, it's just this, like, awesome underdog story. Like, you're cheering for Saracen, and um, you're cheering for Landry, if you guys have watched the show. And But, like, you know, it's, like, Rudy and Miracle and, like, even, like, Cool Runnings. You know, y'all remember that show? Like, it's uh, the underdog story. Like, it's, like, the un, they inspire us because they surprise us. Okay? It's, the, it's the unexpected. That's the drama of it. And the, the least likely wins, the undervalued triumphs. Um, and what the world sees is this moment of where someone who isn't supposed to be great is called 
into greatness, and they step into it, and the world gets turned upside down, and it's wonderful, and we win the state championship, right? It's great, okay? And I think that this is, in my mind, what intrigued me and intrigues me about Jesus and Christianity is because against the backdrop of the world, it is so countercultural. It's so different the way that Jesus lived and the way that he taught us to live is so radically different than what we see in the world. Because really the world, we love to celebrate an underdog, but most of the time we want to be the ones that are on top dominating. Like, it's awesome to cheer the underdog, but I don't want to be the underdog, right? And so when we think of Jesus and we think of of what he valued and what he deemed valuable, it really is the ultimate underdog, underdog story. Um, and so as we get into Matthew 5, we see Jesus beginning. Um, he has uh, retreated into the mountains. This crowd has followed him. He's been healing people and teaching and doing all these amazing things, and people are following him, and this crowd is growing, and he begins to teach. And we start in Matthew 5.1 with the Beatitudes. And, and as you are reading the, um, the Beatitudes, there's the blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. And so we have these blessed statements. We don't really have time to go through all of them. But when we think of blessed, we think, oh, like too blessed to stress, right? We've really like distorted that word. Okay, but blessed is, is, is to be made holy, is to be set apart and, and confident in what we have. There's confidence in that joy and peace that we have because it comes from the Lord. And, and so the beginning here is not just a series of values. Okay, it's not just like, oh, this is something to aspire to. Okay, Christ is saying, this is what your, you say you follow me, this is what your life will look like now. So it's not something we aspire to. Is something that we live out. This is who we are. And if you really look at that list, it's kind of not that fun, honestly. You know, blessed are the poor, those who mourn, right? The merciful, okay? And they didn't think, man, so this is what it's going to look like to follow the king. This is not kind of what they, this is very unexpected. But here's the really cool thing about what Jesus does in this Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever, is he actually tells them why. He gives them a why. And a lot of times he doesn't. Sometimes Jesus isn't that straightforward. He talks in stories and he doesn't always give a straight answer, but here he gives them the why. And so we're going to flip forward to 13, verse 13, 513. Um, and we're going to start here. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Rather, on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, you maybe have been in church a little bit, and you've heard the salt and light sermon, and you're like, okay, just be a good human because people are watching us, and blah, blah, blah. Yes, we need to do that, 
okay? But I want to kind of dig into it a little bit and give us some specifics to walk away from, okay? Jesus is using terms that make sense to the followers in that day, okay? Salt was something that we, like, try to avoid now a little bit, Um but the thing, the salt of the earth people, we think about, we think of like a rancher in Kansas, you know, salt of the earth. He's like normal, hardworking folks, right? But salt in this context is so valuable. It's like a form of currency. It was used to preserve food. Um, it was used as an antiseptic, salt in a wound, okay? It was used as an antiseptic. Um, it was used for uh, rituals. It had all of these uses. It was highly valuable, valuable. And what Jesus is saying here and what we have to understand that he's saying is he's saying, you, the salt of the earth, you are what's valuable in this world. And this is so radical because of who Jesus hung out with. He was not hanging out with the people that society said were valuable. And he is saying, no, they're not the one. You are valuable here. This is who is valuable. It is you. It wasn't the poor and the sick. That's not who society said. If you were poor or sick in this culture, it's because you did something wrong. That was your punishment. So their condition to be poor or to be sick was a sign to the rest of the world that they had done something to deserve that plight. And here Jesus is saying, you are what is valuable here. He calls them to be the light of the world. He's calling them to shine through the good works in this world so that others whom they are illuminating are they illuminating the Father in heaven. They're pointing the way to the Father in heaven. But these aren't the ones, like this isn't the starting lineup. Okay, this isn't the, the starting crew that is going to take them all the way to the championship, right? This is the ragtag third string JV. Like this is not the people who that the religious people of the day were saying would be the ones to inherit the kingdom. And why them? And I think this is so important. 1 Corinthians 1 Uh, 2831, God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing. So he might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something. So that no one can boast in his presence. But from him you are in Christ Jesus. For us became wisdom from God as well as, well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in that order. As it was written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. He intentionally chose the lowest, the weakest, the most undervalued, the most unexpected to ensure that he gets the glory and the power that lies in these people now, there's no doubt whose power that truly is, and that is of the Holy Spirit, that is of Christ. So why is this important to us? Why does this matter to us? Assault and light. We are called to be radically distinctive in this world, to look different than the rest of the world in a way that people are drawn to us, they're attracted to us, and they're saying, something is different about you. What is different about you? And then you get to tell them about Jesus. And we get to point them to the hope. That's Jesus' plan. To save the world was that we go and do his bidding. 
And I, I think the challenge the Western church, our church, the church culture that we live in is facing is that we don't look any different than the world. There's really nothing different or distinctive about Christians at times. And that, that's, that is the pushback for people who are very much, when leaving the church, angry at the church, have hurt from the church, is that it's like, you look just like everybody else. But you say it in the name, that you're doing it in the name of Christ. We are the humble, the meek, the peacemakers. That's who we're called to be. The weak, the meek. And, and, and we don't want to think of ourselves that way. I know that we want to believe we're different because we're in church and we're called Christians, okay? And, like, I think there are so many people, I think, oh, Christians are all the, you know, hypocrites and all. Yeah, we are. We're full, this whole place full of sinners. And if you don't think you are one, why don't we talk afterwards, okay? Because we can talk about a few things, get settled out, okay? But we think, okay, because I'm, I dedicate this hour on a Sunday that, that I'm different than the rest of the world. And maybe... But the call, and it is a call, it's a command that Jesus said is that not y'all try to be salt and light. He said, you are. We are. This is your identity. This is our identity. Only this. This is our distinction in this world is that our identity is in who Christ called us to be and how he asked us to live and nothing else. And so how do, we, how do we get back to this place where we are distinctive in this world? How do we um, look at us and say, man, there's something different about them, and they desire to know what that is, and we get to point them to Jesus? Because ultimately, the things that we do, like the beautiful story that Mike and Celeste shared about going to Nepal, as gorgeous and beautiful and inspiring as it is, it is not about them. It is about what Christ is doing through obedience and faithfulness of people in Nepal and a little church in Fort Worth and all the little other churches that support them, it's about what God is doing there. And we forget that. And I, and I wanted to like give you guys some specifics today. So I didn't want to just say, be salt and light, be good humans, tip well, all those things. Right? Like, I, do those things, okay? But like, I want to give you something to hang on to today, okay? So I think, there's, I think there's three things I pulled out of how to look and live radically different. Because Christ knew the world was going to watch his followers and that we were tasked to be the ones that would tell the world about him. And so I think we have to look at the question first is, if the world had to know about Jesus, about how I lived and how I acted and how I spoke, what would they think of Jesus? That's essentially what we're being called to. So I, I think there's three things. I pulled three things, okay? One, I think to look distinctive in this world, we have to be radically loving. And I know we're like, oh, love, I can love people. Like, good, okay, check, I'm doing good on that one. I'm nice, okay? Let's dig in here, okay? Do we love people who are hard to love? Do we love people who we disagree with? Who, um, do we love people who live differently, value different things, look differently, speak differently, vote differently than we do? Seriously. And I know we like joke about it, but like I have heard and experienced myself people because they have different political 
affiliations, beliefs, whatever, like families severed, relationships destroyed forever because they can't figure it out. Because you disagree with me, that means you hate me and I hate you and it's us versus them and I can't love you anymore. So we joke about, of course, we have to love people, but do we really? Are we really willing to do the work to love? Do we see human beings, all human beings, and I know there's a lot of teachers in here. Put that one kid in your mind, okay? Y'all know who we're talking about, whoever it is. Little Johnny, little Susie, whoever that is. Do you see them as made in God's image, deserving of dignity, value, respect, love, kindness? Do we see people we disagree with as valuable? Do we see people who maybe are living outside of the the norm or the margins as valuable, made in God's image, as he calls us all, made in his image? 1 John 4, 16 says, as we have come to know and believe that, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. And in this, love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, we are also in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear and fear involve, because fear involves punishment. So one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he loved us first. And if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For the people, the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he cannot see love God, who cannot see love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command for him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. God knew this would be hard. Jesus knew this would be hard. He knew this would be the thing that trips us up, and it does. It does. And we, we don't see people we dislike or disagree with as people, as much as having to acknowledge them or love them. And what does love mean? And we see reports that people are leaving the, the, the Western church and leaving the church and, and all these things. And um, it, I, I think it's, it's not because God has changed. It's like we don't have the, the space or capacity that is required to love. Like when you love somebody, you have to give some room. Because they're, I don't know if you're married, but like I love my husband, but like, the fact that he falls asleep instantly, I got to have some room to love, you know? Like, we have to have room to be able to sit with people that we disagree with. And we don't do that anymore. Radical love means requiring us to love outside of our safe boundaries. It might be getting on a plane and going to Nepal in October. Radical love means that we sit in conversations that maybe make us feel uncomfortable. Or, and, and even if we don't have the answer, we still stay in it to listen, to understand. Radical love may be standing up for those who have been marginalized or who are vulnerable or who are hurting or who are isolated. Radical love may cost us being liked or included. Radical love may be leveraging the platforms or the influence that we have to widen circles and open doors. 
Too long, we have allowed the us versus them narrative to dictate our love. To be distinct in this world means that we have to love all people radically. And that means sincerely. Like people are not projects. They are people. They are humans. They have the, the holistic person. It's not just to, hey, look, I got them to church and now we love them. It's, it's to love them, bring them close, to go close to them, being willing to have space in our lives and our hearts and our minds for those we don't always agree with or understand. Radical love means to recognize and honor a person's God-given value and dignity and care for them well and care for their souls. Because we were given a radical love and we are commanded to give radical love. So radically loving people, salt and light, are radically loving people. I also believe that we are called to be radically generous with our time, with our talents, with our treasure. Generous people are generous because they don't hold anything too tightly, whether it's money or status or comfort. Proverbs 11 says, one person, uh, one person gives freely yet gains more. Another withholds what is right only to become poor. One way we demonstrate our trust in God is by faithfully stewarding what he's entrusted us with. And in turn, he can trust us with more. And there's none more generous than God. And as we are becoming more and more like Christ, we are becoming more and more generous as well. This is the core of who God is. When he saw our sin and our brokenness, he didn't pull back. But yet, in the most generous, selfless act ever, he gave his son on our behalf. And he gave his son to people who didn't know they even needed him. Didn't ask for it. And I know when we hear generosity, we, we think of money. But I, I firmly believe generosity is a state of our heart, not of our bank account. Generosity is a response to God's continued generosity to us. And this should cause us to respond in every area of our lives. Our time, our talent, our treasure. And I think a good measure of, of how we are being salt and light in this world is we look at those things. That's an evaluative tool for us. Like, how generous am I with my time? Do I intentionally prioritize serving others? In my time. And I say intentional. Service is something to others. It's not for gain for ourselves. It's purely to show the love of Christ to others. Bill spoke really well um, a couple weeks ago of rest and Sabbath, the importance of that, which is vital to our health and our growth. And there are seasons we definitely need rest. And many of us, and I am preaching to me right now, so y'all can y'all just get to sit in on my in-head conversation. A lot of us are so busy, we are just resting because of us. We just have packed our schedules to the point where we don't have any intentional time or space left. So the rest is because of us. The rest needed is just to like take a breath before we get back on the treadmill of life. And there's nothing outside of ourselves in our schedules. There's nothing that serves God's kingdom and builds up believers and, and helps shine the light of Christ. 
It's, it's all the things we have to do or we need to do or we're supposed to do, and there's no time set aside to serve and to, and to know people and to serve people for the sake of the gospel. And I know a lot of you guys are in service jobs, and I'm not saying, please, like, hear me. Like, I get, you're like, I'm keeping 25 first graders alive every single day and potty training and teaching math. You know, like, so I'm not saying, like, oh, you just got to do more, okay? But it's your life is service, and I get that. This passage, I believe, is asking us to look at our lives honestly and make it a priority to serve people, leverage our influence for the sake of a gospel. I met with a sweet friend this week who is a teacher, and she, like, we were just talking, and she said, I love being a door holder. Like, she had this huge smile on her face. I love being a door holder. God has gifted her with a gift of hospitality. Like, she is just a warm, friendly person. Making people feel seen, known, loved is a priority to her. And she's leveraging her talent in her job and at her church to share the love of Christ with people. There's intention there. She's doing exactly what God created her to do with intention. And she knows that helping people feel seen, loved, illuminates the path towards Jesus. And she feels so fulfilled from that. I believe the way that we steward our treasure, our finances, should be treated with the same intention. And this is not a tithing sermon, but it, we do have to look at how we prioritize money as an opportunity to display radical generosity and bring glory to God. There's a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and the author talks about this reprioritization her family did. They were a large family, fixed income, and they start began to reprioritize their grocery budget to have large meals on a regular basis, to invite other people in, to invite neighbors in, to invite coworkers in, to invite new friends in, to have meals with them. They prioritized what they had in terms of treasure to intentionally serve and love people. That's generosity. The world calls us to gather and hoard and, and, and have all these certain things. And, and we put the most value on stuff and, and the stuff that we have and the stuff we do because that determines who we are. Later in Matthew 6, the sermon continues and he tells us, For your heart will always pursue what you value as treasure. As salt and light, what we value is our Savior Jesus and making him known through all that we do, through intentionally prioritizing our time, our treasure, our talents to the glory of God. I think the best, the, the best way that um, we can be radically loving people is or be radically loving, be radically generous, and be radically humble. To be humble is not to view yourself greater or more important than another. A big part of our identity as a church, and you see like courageous, bridge-building, mission-driven there's a little part of that that we talk about as a staff a lot that we need to share with you more is that we are called to have fingerprints everywhere, name nowhere. So it means that we are involved and serving in all these different aspects in our community, but it's not to elevate the table, it's to elevate Christ. And I think that has a lot to do with being humble as a Christian I've landed in a place of, of understanding that radical humility means that this life is no longer about me and what I get from it. It is living in a way that exalts Christ in all that I do. To be humble, 
I have to be able to listen, and I have to listen to understand. I have to recognize and confess my own sin on a regular basis. I have to lay aside my pride that calls me to be the most important thing in my life and head and heart and live an honest life that accurately reflects who Jesus is. And an honest life, a humble life, does not mean some toxic, false positivity. If you tell me, I'm like, how's it going? Oh, I'm fine. That's like a red flag for me. Like, I will tell you that. That's a red flag. What's going on? Fine is a red flag. Now everybody's like, I'm not going to say that to her anymore. But anyways, but... It's not saying like, oh, everything is perfect, because that is not the Christian life. We are promised suffering. An honest Christian life, a humble Christian life, isn't the absence of suffering. It's a recognition that this is the human condition, but we have a present and loving Savior through it all. And we can have confidence in that. So as we close, salt and light. I want you guys to remember this, are only useful when they're being used. Salt is not salty if it's just sitting in the shaker. A light does not illuminate if it's not turned on. It is in use and service to others that God is glorified. And the radical nature of Jesus is he said, if you live for me, you got to give it all away. If you live for me, you have to give of yourself. You have to lay your life down as a sacrifice to the kingdom, just like I did. And it's all about taking what God has given us and using it to make much of the name of Jesus. And it's through radical love. It is through radical generosity and radical humility. And then we get to be on the front row of the miracle of the transformed lives around us. Will you pray with me?